a lot of activism and activist groups can really be hijacked by folks who are unwell and moving within those systems. And so it may feel very noble, kind of say I'm sacrificing myself for the sake of this bigger cause, but it's also been studied that a lot of movements have petered out because people within those movements became unwell and created this kind of environment that really wasn't helpful for sustaining movements and for sustaining change. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm your co-host, Ben Tapper, and I'm joined, as always, by the incomparable Matt Burke. Hey, Matt. I don't know. I might be comparable. Hey, everybody. Well, that's <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> and today we are having a conversation with Reverend Dr. Christina Jones-Davis from Christian Theological Seminary. And you'll note that this conversation is really part of what has become a series on the Center for Congregations podcast, dealing with the intersections of faith and mental health. And so you can view this conversation as another iteration or another episode, if you will, of that series. And Dr. Davis is uniquely situated to speak to this because she walks in both worlds as an ordained minister and as someone who not only practices as a therapist, but also teaches and trains upcoming therapists. And so we were really excited to just kind of have her join us to dialogue about this. And Matt, I'm wondering what you are seeing in your work, especially, you know, in the last year that we've had that makes this topic so important. Yeah, before I get to what I'm hearing in our work, I want to talk about just some places that I'm hearing about this in culture Mm. and around me. I was having a conversation with someone last night that I trust that knows a lot about intersections in mental health and faith and just society, and he was telling me that based on what's happened in the pandemic and based on where we're moving, once we kind of get back to a life that is more normal than what we've been living through, there are precedents and there's evidence that the rate of anxiety and depression will potentially be three times higher than average, and that could last for potentially up to a decade. Wow. And I'm hoping to have him on a future podcast or maybe even for some education events. And so I don't know what sources he's citing, but it's someone I do trust, and hopefully we'll get our hands on some of that data and information. So that's a pretty stark picture that he painted. And then from another standpoint, my wife is a mental health counselor and works with several practices around the Fort Wayne area. And she's been telling me that the number of clients reaching out, there are very long wait lists that they have not seen before. So there's this sense that even as we're approaching, we're recording this in March, beginning of March, and even as we're approaching, hopefully what will be the end of quarantining and government restrictions, that the mental health crisis is deepening. 
and becoming more stark. And I think we at the center are just trying to do our due diligence because people that we trust are telling us that this is coming, that there's a wave of mental health concerns that will be on the rise for a period of time. And so we really want to try to help equip congregations to be thinking about that, because if it's present in general in society, it will be present in your congregation. And I think it's important to be equipped, to be knowledgeable, to understand what resources are available to you so that you can serve the people in your congregation well. Yeah, and I also wonder if, you know, I myself have experienced a surge in my anxiety related to the pandemic, but I already knew that I dealt with anxiety and depression beforehand. And so I wonder, though, if people maybe not having to work or being at home, in addition to the compounding stress of the pandemic and economic issues, if just having a little extra time to reflect has made them aware of the fact that they do actually have some mental health issues that they want to begin to address, and maybe they didn't have the time to become aware of that before. Yeah, it's very possible. And I can't speak to necessarily the awareness of mental health, but I can tell you from the work in the Northeast region up here in Fort Wayne and surrounding counties that just hearing congregational leaders talk about how much they are tired, just how much fatigue there is. And I think it's not only having to learn new skills because of being online, but the polarization that's happened in our culture, and we've had several podcasts that have talked about how that's crept into congregations, so there's a higher incidence of conflict present, and just the fatigue of everything that we've gone through, and we thought, you know, maybe this is going to be a couple months, and it's stretched now into, actually, in seven days from the day of this recording, it will be one year since, basically, we moved into a state of national emergency. Wow. So whether we're talking about what we are experiencing and seeing in the international or national context, or what we are noticing in congregational life, I think this topic is obviously important, and that's why we continue to have dialogues with different professionals about the ways in which faith and mental health can intersect. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of room for these things to be dealt with in congregations, and I think one of the critical things is the importance of relationship among the people in the congregation, not necessarily with the faith leader, but with one another, and the idea of learning to support one another better, talk about real things, talk about deeper things, talk about painful things. I think that's going to be a necessary skill set that congregations are going to need to work on as we move into this hopefully post-pandemic phase. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And so, you know, with that said, let's just jump right into the conversation with Dr. Jones Davis. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am your co-host, Ben Tapper, an associate for resource consulting at the Center for Congregations, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Matt Burke, who is our Northeast Director and the Director of Education. Hey, Matt. Hey, Ben. And today we are joined by Reverend Dr. Christina Jones-Davis, who is the Clinical Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology and Marriage and Family Therapy at Christian Theological Seminary. It's so great to have you here, Dr. Davis. Hi. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. It is such a snowy time here in Indianapolis, so it's nice to kind of have my cup of coffee and sit down and have this conversation with you all. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, there's a lot of parts of the country that it's snowier than it should be. So, <laughs> Indeed, indeed, yeah. So one of the reasons Matt and I are excited about having you on the podcast today is that you are uniquely situated to kind of speak to this intersection of what it means to be involved in faith-based community as a minister, as a leader, as a professor even. But you can also bring in the clinical, psychological aspect of this and talk about human development, talk about what it means to pay attention to one's emotional needs and then to apply that to how we think about ministry and our faith. And as I'm sure you've experienced, living through a pandemic, more and more people have become aware of the importance of taking care of their mental health, of basic self-care practices. And so we are finding a lot of traction and a lot of appetite for this topic of people that can speak to that intersection of faith and mental health. And so we're super excited to have someone as it seems yourself to be able to speak to that today. And so I'm wondering if we can just kick this off with you talking about how you came to understand the importance of that intersection and what it has meant both in your life and ministry. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that for me personally, it starts way back when I was a child growing up and watching my own parent who was in ministry. My father served as a pastoral care minister. And in that time, he didn't necessarily have clinical training, but he had the heart and the posture of what it means to not just be concerned with preaching from the pulpit or, you know, that part of pastoral ministry, which is hugely important, the proclamation of the good news, but also bringing that incarnate presence of Jesus to hospital bedsides and during other kind of points such as weddings, but also funerals, right? So accompaniment throughout the ups and downs of life is what I saw as you served in that role. And so I think that for me, when I went to school and developed an interest in psychology, I didn't know at the time that I was going to kind of do this intersection. Fun fact, at first I was pre-dentistry when I entered school, so I didn't know at the time what was in store, but I really loved psychology, and so that was my major, and then I began doing a lot of campus ministry, and as I started to kind of nurture and develop my own voice as a minister, I saw how the two just work seamlessly together, that being ministry and this understanding of human psychology and human behavior and health and wellness and what those have to say about even spiritual health and wellness and wholeness and just kind of talking about similar concepts using different lenses and words that I think really informed one another. And so that took me into seminary, which took me to my doc program, which integrated marriage and family therapy uh, theories and practices with theological study. And I was in heaven. It was a program that was perfect for my dual interest. And it really did train folks who were scholar practitioners to both do therapy as well as to teach or to lead in ministry settings. And so that's what I ended up doing. That's such a, a unique story and journey. I would never have guessed that you were pre-dentistry and then found your way here. <laughs> so it's awesome that that's how it has worked out. 
So I've had the privilege of hearing you speak about this intersection in one of our grant programs. It's the formative power of your congregation. And during those sessions, you articulated the importance of knowing the basics of human development. And that's, you know, an incredibly broad topic. We don't have the time to go into it today, but I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit to where people can get started understanding human development. Where do they learn about it? And then what are some like key pieces that they need to kind of begin to understand to dive into that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that human development is a very broad discipline way of thinking that has these subsets of ways to enter into that conversation. There's many theories about what makes for successful developments in humans. And so I'll give you kind of the broad overview, and then I will make some suggestions for those that I think are most practical and applicable for people if they wanted to learn more. But really, human development is the study of some of the trends or things that we can say we expect to see in this normative range of development from birth to death, the entire span of the life. And so what do we consider healthy development for a six-month-old, right? They're folks who study early development in that range and all the way to what is healthy development for an adolescent to midlife to later life, because we do not stop developing. (laughs) We are always developing. And there's always ways of kind of thinking about markers for what is the fruit of that, that we can observe, that we can notice that we're on the right track. And that's what I really love about the ways that we mentioned Tim Shapiro, and this is really his brainchild, which I was so delighted that he kind of invited me into this project to think with him about what are the trail markers of human development? It's the word that we use to help people to kind of visualize using the metaphor of going on a journey, right? There are multiple pathways that can get you to your destination, but there are some people who traveled before you. There are some folks who charted paths before you such that you can kind of use those markers of you're on the right track, you're doing okay, you know, there are some markers that say that you're developing helpfully and healthily. And so human development is a study of those markers, of those indicators. And so I think that for me, one of the I think most widely used in terms of application is this notion of, and I think very relevant for the pandemic that we're living through, is this notion of emotional regulation and how we understand our ability to be in relationship with our own emotional selves and our own emotional senses, ways of knowing when things are going okay, when things are breaking down. Our bodies and our emotions are advocates and allies that help us to understand those things. And so that form of emotional intelligence about ourselves is really helpful. And I think this ties into what it means when it's emotional intelligence about others as well. But I think for folks who just really want to start with themselves, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, it's a really big word, but they have some wonderful, wonderful workbooks, reading resources that make it so very applicable 
whether it be journaling, whether it be mindfulness practices, there's a lot in the way of DBT resources that can help folks with emotional regulation. And that's one that I would recommend first. It really does take seriously this notion of emotions are not to be judged. They just are, right? And our job is to kind of be in relationship with them so that we can understand what our needs are and to know that we can ride that wave, that they come and they go, just kind of like that image of of a wave on a beach, right? It can get really intense, but it tends to crash and recede on its own if we can really kind of keep our grounding and our footing when we feel those things. So DBT is one great one. Yeah. And just on a really practical level, for those who might not be in the world of understanding mindfulness or paying attention to emotional intelligence, what do you see as the very kind of baseline practical benefits of that, especially for congregational leaders and people in congregations? Yeah. Well, well, leadership certainly begets well organizations and well, you know, communities. And so, In a practical sense, when folks are able to emotionally regulate and mindfulness is one method of practicing that, it's a way of kind of teaching our nervous system to calm itself such that we're not in that fight or flight zone. And what happens when we are in that fight or flight zone or freeze even is that it really limits our ability to see all of our options, to think creatively to make decisions that are, you know, rational because the emotion has taken over. There are ways in which, of course, if emotions are running the show, that's not good either. Um, Not that emotions are, are bad, but when they're running the show, that can be out of balance such that that's a contagion. And then other people can become in the same way emotionally reactive and that grounding of a leader can ground an entire ecosystem of emotionality so that people can really, you know, show up as their best selves. I think we're all on a journey, of course, but in terms of people's baselines of being able to still show the attributes of Christ that we talk about, even when we think about, okay, we're going to show the fruit of the spirit of, you know, gentleness or kindness. It's hard to be gentle or kind when we're <laughs> when we're so anxious that we can't we're on the defense or that we can't really see the other person for what might be really happening, but we're more so just trying to discharge or manage our own anxiety. So there's a connection there, I think, between even as we practice the fake commitments that we hold dear our ability to regulate our emotions. And so, yeah, does that connect the two? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I think from the faith tradition that I grew up in, some of the pushback on those thoughts are, we need to be focused on the other and we need to be sacrificing ourselves to serve the other. And I've learned that that's not necessarily the best way to handle oneself. But how do you help people who have that mindset to take seriously the kind of self-care that you're talking about, because it takes discipline, it takes boundaries, it takes time to be able to care for yourself in that way. And so how do you help people understand why that's so important, even in the framework of serving in the way of Jesus? 
Yeah, that is such an important question and concept because I do think even though we could see in biblical scripture, it says love our neighbors as ourselves, that neighbor part of the commandment can still get more focused, but also sometimes more affirmation in terms of what others celebrate, what others kind of affirm publicly. But the part of loving self and having the ability to say, this is what I need. And it is selfish insofar. It is kind of something that is for me for a time. <laughs> it can feel anti-community of faith, right? So I think this question about how we understand our commitments or our faith commitments to the good of the whole and the wellness of the whole of the community of faith, as well as, you know, all of God's creation, I really understand through the lens of womanist thought. So womanist thought is committed to and concerned with the liberation of all people. And they really use the lens of the tripartite oppression of race, gender, and class that really says if the form of faith and the form of spirituality or the form of salvation that folks are practicing doesn't address those things. And it's really not salvific for Black women, including in that is the ways we understand self-care and self-love. And so this has really been helpful for me and I think can lend itself as a model for others, but that even in this notion of womanist commitment to liberating all people, there's something where they say womenists need to be separatists for a time. And I like this notion of for a time. It's not something that is indefinite, but it's for the purpose of restoration, of self-care, of connecting with that which is nourishing to the self in order to return to the work and to the community and be well. And so womanist thought has really helped me with that balance. And I think that's true in other kind of movements, especially social justice oriented, kind of faith oriented movements. A lot of activism and activist groups can really be hijacked by folks who are unwell and moving within those systems. And so it may feel very noble to kind of say I'm sacrificing myself for the sake of this bigger cause, but it's also been studied that a lot of movements have petered out because people within those movements became unwell and created this kind of environment that really wasn't helpful for sustaining movements and for sustaining change in the work of, of change. And so I kind of am looking at this from a social justice informed lens in terms of faith practices. But I also think it applies to other kind of faith practices and commitments that we're showing up communities for us to really be there for the other. I do, do need the courage to kind of set those boundaries and be there for ourselves as well. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it's interesting and instructive, I think, to look at some of the major issues that have come about in prominent leaders in the Christian faith tradition in the last two, three years. And it's not that necessarily these people have evil hearts and are terrible people, but potentially running too hard after their goal without taking proper self-care 
and getting their needs met in healthy ways and therefore finding ways to get their needs met in unhealthy ways and then leading to the issues that happen. And so I think, you know, those stand as stark warnings for us. And you also mentioned, uh, you know, some in the social justice sphere, watching leaders go through those kinds of things is a warning that we need to take that time for self-care and make sure that we're making sure that we're healthy on a regular basis, because if we are unhealthy in our personal life, we are unhealthy in our leadership life and probably in other facets of life as well. Indeed. You know, and I'd also add that the verse uh, that was mentioned about, I think, loving your neighbor as yourself, as I think about and reflect on that verse, I look back at my own life and my own faith journey, and I realize that there are so many times where I have not actually known how to love myself, right? And so I can want to give or overgive to my neighbor thinking I'm doing that, when in reality, that first piece of knowing how to love me doesn't exist as fully as it could. Therefore, it's not informing the second piece of loving my neighbor. And I think this focus on human development, on self-care, on just understanding yourself, taking care of yourself can really help enrich our ministry to others because we're enriching our ministries to ourselves first and foremost. Yeah. And I love that. Our ministry to ourselves, right? So I think if we are folks who believe that you know we've been called to love, all of God's creation, then that includes us. And I know it sounds, you know, it does sound very fundamental, but it is difficult for folks to really include the self in that commitment to love and to serve, to minister to you. That's a great challenge. And I'm wondering, you know, as you think about your time, do you actively see patients as a therapist right now, Christina? I do. Mm -hmm. So as you think about your continued work as a therapist or your work training other therapists, I'm wondering what are some things you would identify that you have learned in those settings that have informed your ministry and or your development as a unique individual outside of the work that you do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really love the work that I do with clients. It's something that even as I've been in different roles, administratively and you know I've done direct care in hospitals and in communities but it was really important to me to continue to have some therapeutic practice alongside any role because it is really grounding in the way that it informs and shapes what I say how congruent it is to what I, with what I teach what I believe that those things continue to helpfully challenge one another so that they're consistent with my experience. And right now I would say, you know, the pandemics that are going on have really created a different kind of element to the work of therapy right now. I think on the one hand, we're 11 months into the health pandemic and people have somewhat normalized some sense of homeostasis, even within the crisis, even within the chaos. And so it's really confusing because we know there's a a new normal feeling to something that is still very much so not post-crisis. I mean, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, right? But there's also such experiences where we're not processing post the trauma. We're still in the situation such that we're just managing, we're seeking to find our own sense of coping within. It's not after, and there's still losses, there's still uncertainties, there's still a hypervigilance about safety that's with us, whether we're naming it or not. And so that being said, 
other parts of our lives are not stopping either. So, you know, there was a couple of conflict before, right? It's still something that people are coming to therapy for now. If there is, you know, if there certainly is anxiety before, people are still, right, having that experience and maybe, of course, heightened now. And so the day-to-day things that people will come to therapy for are still happening, but there's this other layer. And so I, number one, feel like people need to really give themselves grace during this time and to just name it as often as necessary to remind oneself that this, we are in a situation where stressors are heightened and stressors are precursors for a whole slew of kind of mental health challenges, right? I see mental health on a continuum. We don't you know, either have mental illness or we don't. Oftentimes, you know, every one of us, we're on the spectrum of, you know, nobody's 100% healthy, right? So we're on the spectrum somewhere within that kind of range. And this environmental contextual context that we're living in with the stressor for us all. And so naming that, extending grace to oneself, extending grace to others that we're in relationship with, particularly those who are in our closest quarters, right? That we might be spending more time with, but having that conversation. And I think one of the practical things for working with relationships as a relationally oriented therapist, I really do privilege the importance of the ways our relationships shape us. Even if I'm only working with an individual, right? That's what I've been trying to do is see that web of relationships that's still informing who the person is in front of me. But when we think about what it means to understand how to navigate this with our relationships, practical pieces that I, I invite people to remember that it's not, oftentimes, it's not helpful to kind of say, if there's a problem going on in the relationship that the other person is the problem, but to actually name the problem and say, you know, the problem is the problem. So for example, if folks are struggling, I'm seeing a couple who's struggling with having all of the household duties addressed and the feeling that it's fair and feeling that it's manageable and, you know, fighting about that. Well, that makes sense. That's stressful. That is distressing for a relationship. But instead of really kind of focusing on what the other person's doing to them, I also want them to spend time naming the circumstances that are intensifying this particular challenge. So naming the problem and saying, this pandemic has put a lot of stress in our relationship. Let's work together us against the stress of the pandemic to solve the problem rather than working to yeah attack the other for what's going on in the, in the household. So that's just one example, but how can people really remember to name this external influence on the pressures they're dealing with day to day? Yeah, that's such an important point. I'm lucky enough to have a good friend who often will talk to me in moments of stress right now and I'll be hard on myself and he'll say, yeah, that's true in the midst of a global pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that part. It helps reframe it to, okay, I can give myself some grace. Absolutely. I was thinking about, as you were talking, Christina, a specific congregation that I've been working with that is in the midst of conflict 
run-of-the-mill congregational conflict. People are mad because pews are moved. They don't want the picture of a white Jesus taken down. You know, like things that congregations get upset about regularly. But I was wondering how much it would change the tension level in that congregation if they could have a collective reframing, right? And just understand the stressful waters they're all swimming in, right? Instead of looking at each other as the problem. So we've talked about it kind of interpersonally in a one-on-one relationship, but like looking at it as a larger group relationship, I think that same principle could still be helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So extending relationships to the web of relationships in a congregation and how you know, especially in medium size and smaller congregations, it is very much a family kind of feel. Some of the same kind of dynamics that happen in families happen in churches. And I would say even in larger churches, you might have different pods of family dynamics. But again, a lot of this would still apply as to how can you seek to extend grace by way of externalizing and not seeing the other person as the problem, especially now where there are so many things that, again, whether they're being named or not, I really do believe that they're impacting all of us. We've kind of normalized it, but it is at play even in times we think that we've gotten to this place of, oh yeah, the pandemic's not really impacting me the same way it was last year, maybe in April. Maybe not the same way because our systems are pretty elastic in that sense and resilient but it's still impacting us. And so the baseline, I don't think it's returned to what it was Mm. before the pandemic. So I think that in church settings, I think one way to really kind of cut through some of the angst that I also try to remind folks is to just also own your own stuff, right? Own your own stuff with grace, as we've talked about and with love, but You know, as we're seeking to navigate groups, really naming that there may be things that we're bringing to those conversations in the conversation about moving the pew or taking down the fight Jesus photo that's important to us. And there's a reason why that is. And so using I language rather than you language and rather than kind of assigning motivation or attention to the other person. That's also something that pits us against each other. So there's practical wisdom, I think, just owning by saying I and and saying what's important for us in any given moment and how that importance has been informed by what's going on, right? So what does taking down a picture of white Jesus not just mean in general, but what does it mean for us now? What does it mean for a person or a congregation in this particular point in history I think really kind of voicing those things and slowing down enough to have that conversation. I'm going to ask you a very like practical question for faith leaders, for congregants that recognize in the midst of this global pandemic, in the midst of these times in their lives, they want to seek out additional help or support and they're looking for a therapist or a counselor, but have no idea where to start outside of a Google search. What practical tips can you give them to help them to figure out not only just how to find counselors, but how to find maybe the right counselor for them? Yeah, well, I want to place a premium on that last part is how to find the right counselor for them. And I want folks to feel empowered to to shop around. And I don't mean that I'm kind of like a modifying therapist kind of way. I am one, you know, we're humans, but I do think there's something about being, being willing to kind of ask questions 
about, you know, their approach, you know, a particular therapist's approach to therapy, you know, their experience with maybe the topics that you're bringing that I think is something that people may not do as often as they could to make sure it's a good match. Um, and, you know, that's for a long time, research has been done. It's called common factors research in marriage and family therapy that says these are the factors that make therapy successful. And at the top of that list is the relationship, the quality of the relationship between the client and the therapist. And so that match part is really key. And so in terms of directories that I would recommend if folks are local to the Indianapolis area, or really at this time, anywhere in Indiana, we have telehealth options at the CTS Counseling Center, Christian Theological Seminary Counseling Center, where they can be connected with some therapist interns or our postgraduate residency. And that number is 317-924. 5205. That's the front desk number, and folks can get connected with the therapist that way. The other directory is Psychology Today, where it's again been kind of around for a while and it's it's a trusted resource. There are several others out there as well, but this is just kind of one of the earliest ones, and most of my colleagues have put their profile on this kind of database. So Psychology Today, you will type in your city, your zip code, and can do a search that way, no matter where you are. And in terms of just licensures as a practical thing, you'll want a therapist that's within your state, you know, if it's telehealth. And then the last practical piece is your insurance. So if folks have insurance, I can understand people wanting to use their insurance. If people have an insurance plan that will support behavioral health, then connect with your insurance to provide a list of the network providers. And again, they're going to give you a long list, but feel empowered to ask questions. So look up, you know, websites to make sure that you feel comfortable with the person and that, that you kind of advocate for what will be a good fit. I know folks for whom it's important that they find a therapist, not only with the right licensure, with the right style, but the right racial identity or ethnic identity. You know, that point of connection can be very important. And so on a website like Psychology Today or another one that I've heard of, it's Better Health. Are there ways to kind of filter down and and find that out? Or are there separate listservs like just for therapists of color that people might be able to go to that you're aware of? There are. There are. And those are some of the ones I think that started in the last few years that if you Google therapist of color or African-American therapist directory, then you'll find those directories as well. And I think that's very helpful. On psychology today, from what I remember of the search, it doesn't allow you to choose based on the therapist identity, but it does allow you to choose based on what the therapist has listed as their areas of experience and competencies and work with people of color. I mean, I think that matters too. So one of the things I encourage folks to ask, well, if you have a topic which you feel like you would want someone with experience speaking to that topic that happens to you about your lived experience as a person of color, one of the things I say is even if the person's not a person of color, you can still ask them. What is your experience? What trainings have you done with, you know, cultural competencies in this area, right? It could be race, it could be gender, it can be class, it could be sexuality. 
those are relevant and valid questions to ask. What is the therapist's experience? Because it may not be that just because they share a particular social identifier that they are competent in addressing certain areas of work. So that is, to me, a very valid question just to ask in the onset. Thank you for that. And I do also want to give a plug. You mentioned that folks could find counseling services through interns or residents at Christian Theological Seminary. And for those that may be leery about receiving counseling from an intern or a resident, I myself have had several counselors at Christian Theological Seminary, and they've all been very high quality counselors, even those that are interns or residents. So I hope you don't let that deter you from seeking out the services there. And a lot of times it can be a bit more affordable if money is something that you're concerned about. And so keep that in mind. They're still offering quality services. And I'm not just saying that because CTS is a sponsoring organization of the Center for Congregations. Uh, <laughs> I've actually lived that and concerned about that. So I just wanted to name that as well. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Knowing those interns and the residents, I've always been very impressed with the quality of services they're able to provide and the ways that their clients attest to that. So absolutely. And if anybody would like to follow your work, follow you, I don't know if you're on social media or other places that they might be able to find you. I'm not really a social media <laughs> person. I do have a Facebook page, but I don't really post. I joke and say I'm kind of a silent member of Facebook. So I'll like and I'll heart things, but I don't post a lot. So yeah. So they should email you or just not worry about finding you at all? <laughs> like actually don't even. Don't even try <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. You can definitely email me. You can reach out to me at uh, C davis at cts.edu should you wish to connect for any reason i'm also on linkedin i'm right there with you it was big news that i actually posted to instagram this morning i had to share that with ben because i was really proud of myself so (laughs) that's like the first thing he said to me this morning (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that would be me i i would love to increase my postage at places instagram included so i might have to call you all up to celebrate when i get to that stage (laughs) please do we would celebrate with you oh good you understand Thank you, Christina, for joining us today. It has been a pleasure and it's been a very rich conversation. We so appreciate you being here. It's my pleasure to talk with you all. Thank you so much for the invitation to have this conversation. That was our interview with Reverend Dr. Christina Jones-Davis. And Ben, what are some things that you took away from that conversation? I really appreciated the ways in which she was able to articulate that her work as a therapist and her work as a minister fed into each other. I think it's such an important thing to name, you know, especially in the context of certain faith traditions that might view any sort of, of mental health or therapy or counseling as antagonistic to your faith. For her to articulate that not only are they not antagonistic, but in my own experience, like my ministry's helped me become a better therapist. My therapy's helped me become a better minister and leader. And I just thought that was really crucial and really powerful for her to name. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's such a key point. In my experience, talking with bivocational leaders, and there's a congregation that I'm a, a big fan of up in this region that actually they have five pastors, but only like 2.7 full-time hours for the congregation. 
for those of you who are in the business world, 2.7 FTE is what they call it. But I always reach back into the nerd bucket, don't I? Just <laughs> esoteric business knowledge. So sorry. For those of you who love that, uh, you're welcome. Those of you who don't, my sincere apologies. <laughs> but anyway, my point is that you know each of those people has a foot in some kind of occupation or role and one foot in congregational leadership. And really, there's a strength there. And I was actually surprised to find out, I can't remember where I heard this stat, but really the idea of full-time ministers has only been something around in society, in Western society, for like 100 years, give or take. Yeah, I know it's a surprising stat. And fact check me, and if I'm wrong, please email Ben. (laughs) No, just kidding. But just thinking through that and realizing that, oh yeah, the, the entire history of faith traditions it's not like we've always had full-time clergy. And please don't get me wrong, everyone, I'm not dogging or thinking less of full-time clergy, but I think there's a strength that comes from even just having good hobbies outside of your occupation, just things that inform you in a different way that then shape how you do ministry and how you live into ministry. And so, yeah, I appreciated that, that her keeping kind of one foot in, in both worlds and how they inform each other. And I just think that shows the strength of having more pieces to your identity than just your occupation, but also shows the strength of having a community where you are interfacing with people who have different occupations than you do, because you can inform one another and learn from one another in those spaces. So yeah, I I thought that was a really, really cool point. I think there's something to be said for the specific pairing of vocations. You know, when you have a pairing of two service vocations, like the training of therapists is such that it helps them not only figure out how to identify what is happening within the patients they're serving, the clients they're serving, but in their training, they're also trained to be aware of what's happening within themselves, right? And so I think that skill of self-reflection, internal dialogue, just constant awareness of self, it will really only help your pastoral ministry, your pastoral vocation, because you're going to be able to take care of yourself, maybe to recognize sooner when you need those breaks, to recognize sooner what is coming up in your interaction with that particular congregant that just kind of grates your nerves. You're going to become, I think, a better, hopefully healthier leader as a result. And so I think, you know, when we talk about being bivocational, at least I often look at it as just a necessity. You know, but there may be an element of choice in it where you can pair things that gel together better or pair things that gel together worse sometimes. And so I think there's something to be said in trying to be a bit more strategic in what is being paired together, not only because of overlapping skill sets, but recognizing which two vocations or which multiple vocations might strengthen each other rather than detract from each other. What were some of your main takeaways? What really stood out to you as you listened, Matt? So I definitely learned a lot about the woman of stance and it was really good to hear her describe that and help understand kind of that triad of oppression through gender, economics, and ethnicity. That was very helpful for me to understand because I've heard of, you know, womanist theology and womanist thought, and I don't know that I'd heard it put that succinctly. So that was really helpful for me as a a category and as a framework for understanding that and just learning to appreciate that, of course, that's a lens because you have very smart people who have become scholars who are women reflecting on the experiences that they've been raised in. And I think that's so important that even if you don't agree with the conclusions of womanist theology or liberation theology or any other kind of theology out there, it's okay if you don't agree with it, but at least respecting its origins and respecting how it did grow out of real experiences. It's not like these things were created out of thin air. And so learning how to, you know, keep that in mind and develop some empathy around where those thought processes, where they come from, and that there is a real 
route to to their emergence. I'll go a step further. I think it's even important to name that they're just as valid as whatever theology you may be holding, right? We have this idea in certain traditions, especially in, in Western Christianity. I think we have this assumption that theology is birthed, you know, from Augustine or Bart or even C.S. Lewis. Like, these are mainstream Christian theologies. These are the belief systems that Christians are supposed to have, when in reality, they are no more or less valid than womanist theology, black liberation theology, muharista theology. They're all approaching theology through their unique lenses. And I think we forget that, that there is no theology in the world that isn't shaped by a sociological context. And when we can accept that and understand that, I think then we can do what you're asking, Matt, which is to approach each theology with more empathy, with more understanding, rather than dismissing it as if it's invalid from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've said this on either, it was during the interview or on a prior podcast, but the idea, and I got this from Jared Bias from the Bible for Normal People podcast, but he said, there's no such thing as an adjectiveless theology. Mm-hmm. That as white Westerners like myself, we're raised kind of thinking that we understand the theology. And then you have these other flavors of theology like womanist liberation, et cetera. But remembering that I am a child of white Western theology. And that doesn't denigrate it by any stretch. It doesn't say that it's wrong. It doesn't say that it's less valuable or even more valuable. It's just acknowledging what is, that the theological tradition that I am out of comes from a white Western society. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. And so when you can kind of say that out loud and, you know, breathe a sigh of relief and then say, oh, okay, (laughs) Mm -hmm. then there are other theologies that have been rooted in other people's experiences. But I think that's the beauty of sacred texts, because sacred texts, and I was even taught this with my white Western theological lens, that you're in dialogue with the text, that you're bringing your experience to the text, and the text is speaking to your experience. And, you know, whatever you consider your sacred text to be, that's just, it just is, that it's not like we have this ironclad interpretation. And of course, we have theological traditions that we look at certain theological concepts and look back and say, this has been roughly the same since X date. So there are those things, but there's also many, many other things that are relatively new creations, even in white Western theology. But we then assume, again, (laughs) because we think this is the theology, we assume that this certain belief was exactly what Paul was thinking about and fighting for in 60 AD. And that may not be the case. And so, you know, examining your assumptions and recognizing that your tradition is just that, it's your tradition, and it may not be someone else's. I mean, and if we're going to be all the way real, recognizing that even someone like the Apostle Paul had his own tradition and context that was informing his unique brand of theology. Everyone has context, and I think that's important to remember. Yeah, and I know this isn't the resource section, and I probably won't put this in the list, but I'll mention N.T. Wright wrote a book, I think it's called Paul, and it's a wonderfully humanizing picture of the Apostle Paul of just how, you know, Paul was not not Jewish. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> Paul was, was still considered himself to be a Jew, but his interaction with what was being evolved into the Christian faith changed the way that he understood his frame for Judaism. And that book just does a really fantastic job. And of course, you know, I don't think N.T. Wright means it to be biographical, that this is an accurate depiction of Paul's life, but at least he attempts to create this humanization. And I think that's really, really helpful as we think about the fact that the writers of all sacred texts, you know, depending on how you feel about divine intervention, you'll think about these from different perspectives. 
but at the end of the day, they were written by people in a specific historical framework, and those words, even though they may be meant for people later in history, they were meant particularly and very specifically for those who were alive in that day. Yeah. And there's a lot to it that, man, I'm getting deep into <laughs> <laughs> sacred text exploration and historical criticism and things like that. Uh, maybe too much, so apologies. But it's why it's so important to do that. And Ben, something you mentioned a minute ago reminded me that everyone is a theologian. You know, we talk about, you know, well, I'm not a theologian. Well, yes, you are. <laughs> if you have thoughts and opinions mm-hmm. on faith and on sacred texts, you're a theologian. It's a question of what kind of theologian are you? And are you a theologian that pays attention, that does the hard work of thinking about and framing your theology, deepening your thought processes? But everyone is a theologian. It just depends on how seriously you take that and how hard you work at being a better theologian than you were before. Yeah. And returning back to this idea of Christina unpacking womanist thought and theology, one of the things I appreciate that you pointed to, Matt, is the intersectionality that's inherent within it. And so if you are trained up in womanist thought and theology, you are looking at theology specifically from kind of a trifold lens. And I love that you're not only looking at race, but you're also looking at things like class. And I think that serves ministers and therapists alike well, but it can even serve us just to understand ourselves better, recognizing that the things that we go through and experience aren't just affected by one aspect of our being, right? That the economic situation that we came up in or exist in now is affecting us. Our racial identity is affecting the way we move through the world. So so just kind of having a multifaceted understanding of ourselves and others as people and being trained to kind of look for the different layers and understand which layer might be activated in any given moment. Again, I think it's just such a crucial skill for ministers to have, for therapists to have, and just for people to have as we're relating with each other day in and day out. And so I love that womanist theology brings that out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, something else that popped up for me, too, was when she talked about how our emotions can often run the show. And it's something on my own personal journey that I've begun to realize is how, you know, mood is not divorced from all other aspects of who I am or the way that my emotions are impacting me are not. I bring my emotions everywhere I go. And it's so important to have an understanding of that because I think at least the the culture that I was raised in, you were supposed to not worry about your emotions, you know, kind of ignore them and just move through life with responsibility and with efficiency and with productivity. You know, you get things done and emotions are somehow this kind of annoying fly in your ear (laughs) that you need to get rid of so that you can get on with the important aspects of life. But realizing that really that's a lifestyle of emotional repression, which leads to all kinds of negative outworkings, because emotions will come out. They just do, whether we want them to or not. And so I think that was just such an important piece that she offered, because, you know, essentially she was saying, if we don't pay attention to our emotional world and we're not cognizant of it, we don't know what negative repercussions may come out of that in a staff meeting or in sermon preparation or in a small group setting. But being aware of them gives us some power over the way that we interact and keeps the toxicity of our emotional world from leaking into the impact that we have. And I think therapy has offered for me and for many others that I know the ability to understand our emotions and how they affect us and therefore how we affect others as well. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. That's a lesson that I have been 
learning more intentionally the last few months, I think, of my life. And really just even more so just trying for me to accept that the emotions are there and to accept that some days they'll feel really intense, other days they may not. But when I stop trying to fight them and make them go away and get rid of them, when I just kind of accept that they exist and admit that to myself and offer myself grace and freedom in feeling them, I find that they affect my relationships less so. Whereas when I fight them, (laughs) I'm not a pleasant person to be around. (laughs) So I'm glad that you named that. And I think it's something that all of us can take with us, whether we are actively working with others day in and day out, or even just the ways in which we relate to ourselves, we can be our harshest critics uh, many days. And so I think if we can learn to extend a bit more grace and breathing room to ourselves to feel and to just acknowledge what is happening and let it happen to some degree, you know, we'd probably move through the world differently. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that tags on to that part of the conversation with her was how she talked about emotions are neutral, or we shouldn't judge our emotions. And I think that's so critical and such an important nuance that, of course, you can have emotions that arise, like maybe the emotion of jealousy comes up in you. And of course, what you do with that is important, but the fact that it happened isn't necessarily within your control. Right. So having the emotion is one thing. Acting on the emotion or dwelling on the negativity that is part of that emotion is a completely different thing. And so learning to not judge ourselves, because I think emotions rising up that we know maybe shouldn't be there, that's okay, but it's a warning sign that maybe something is wrong in the way that we think or something in the way that we move in the world. And so it provides an opportunity for us to make changes But the emotion itself is not bad, and I don't need to beat myself up over emotions that arise in me. It reminds me of like back in youth group, (laughs) one of the the things that that set me free was they were talking about temptation, and I think this is kind of analogous, that it says, you know, temptation is not, everybody experiences it, and it's not inherently bad in and of itself. And the way it was described to us was, you know, the devil's allowed to stand on your porch and shout into your house all you want what you're responsible for is whether you let him in or not. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, this simple analogy for kids to understand that as temptations arise in us, we're not responsible for those initial thoughts that arise. What we're responsible for is what we do with that. But I think the same is true for emotion. We're not responsible for the emotions that rise up in us in a given moment, but we are responsible with what we do with them. And so paying attention to emotion, not judging it, but asking, what is this telling me about myself, how I'm feeling in the moment, and maybe what I should do next? That's the important piece of it, and that's what we're responsible for. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this feels like a really good segue into our resources section. I'm wondering, Matt, what resources stood out to you after experiencing this interview that you wanted to bring today? Yeah, the first thing that popped up for me was Mike McHarg's book that came out last year, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, Embracing the Emotions, Habits, and Mystery that Make You You. And it is such an important primer on understanding how emotions affect us. Mike takes a lot of information about a segment of therapy that's called AEDP, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. That's a mouthful, but don't let that scare you away from the book because this is not an academic work. This is a work about Mike's experiences and journey of understanding himself, but I think along the way, readers can learn so much about themselves, about how we relate to emotions and how we can be more cognizant of them and learn how to let emotions run their course in us, which is often where a lot of mental health problems lie is that we shut off emotion, don't allow it to do its job, 
And then that's where problems can arise. So I cannot recommend this book enough. It would be a fantastic book just to read for you as a leader, maybe for you to even read as a leadership team in your congregation, just to understand a little bit more about how emotion plays into life in a larger way. And for those that are wondering why the name sounds familiar, Mike McCarg was our very first guest in episode one of the Center for Congregations podcast. So you can go back, season one, episode one, check out his interview as well. And I believe he touches on the book in the interview too. I brought a short documentary. It's about a 15-minute documentary film you can find on YouTube called What Manner of Woman? It was put out by the Womanist Institute, and this I chose because it it gives us a fuller picture of the history of womanist thought and theology, but also touches on its impact in the the black church tradition and in the black community. And so it features popular theologians like the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. It has references to Alice Walker and interviews with other pastors and seminary leaders. And so it just will help you for those that are curious about what womanist theology is. Maybe you haven't heard the term before this interview and you want to take a little bit deeper dive. It's 15 minutes. It's on YouTube. You can kind of watch it once all the way through and get a wider lens view of what we mean when we talk about womanist thought, womanist theology, and more specifically what it means not only to the African-American or black Christian tradition, but what it might mean moving forward for Christianity in general. Yeah, thanks for bringing that, Ben. I didn't know you were going to bring that, and that's definitely something I want to dive into to understand and learn more. I also, you know, I'm not going to unpack this too much, but I will encourage you all to take a look at the show notes for this episode. The show notes include resources to help you connect with counseling services like BetterHelp and another website to help you find therapists of color for those that are specifically looking for a black indigenous person of color as a therapist. We know, again, with the way that this last year has gone, mental health is at the forefront of most people's minds. And so if you are someone that is looking to find a therapist or to find a counselor that might be able to help walk you through this next part of your mental health journey, we've got better help on there and another link to help you find therapists of color. Or there's also Christian Theological Seminary. Any of those would be good places to start, especially CTS, since I know that they offer some discounted fees for therapy. So if money might be a concern, I'd recommend starting there and then checking out the other two websites because it's important to get the help that you need and to find a therapist that fits who you are and where you are in your journey. And and I also appreciated that Dr. Davis touched on that in the interview as well and kind of what you can do to evaluate if a therapist fits you or if you fit a particular therapist. I think it's important to remember that fit is key. You can't just work with anybody. You wouldn't do that for a plumber or a physician, and so we shouldn't do it regarding our mental health either. Yeah, that's a great point. So make sure to check out the show notes for a link to all of those resources, and remember that we have tons more resources on the CRG, the Congregational Resource Guide. That's thecrg.org. There's between 1,500 and 2,000 of the best resources that we've discovered. And again, all of these we have had eyes on, uh, not me personally, but as an organization, we have had eyes on each and every one of these resources, and we only choose those things that we think are helpful. So there's some really good stuff out there on any topic related to congregational life. So we just encourage you to check out the CRG, both for the show notes, but also for anything else that you're interested in finding more information on. 
And as always, be on the lookout for education events that we might offer around this topic or other topics. Matt is our education director, and he's constantly putting out a wide variety of events that speak to various issues that congregational leaders care about. So you can find those on our website. You can also find them on our social media pages, Facebook and Instagram specifically. So if you're not following us, please follow us at the Center for Congregations on either platform. And if you're so inclined, uh, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, take a second and leave us a five-star rating and review. That way other folks can find this show and be edified in the same way that you are. So we want to thank Jaden Lee for editing this episode and for the original music. Really appreciate Jaden making us sound amazing. And as always, we want to express gratitude for the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. They are a major reason that we can do not only the work of this podcast, but uh, the work of resource consulting and offering matching grants in general. And so we appreciate their generosity. So we would love to connect with you. If you're an Indiana congregation, there's likely an office that's relatively near you. We'd love to talk with you. And if you're not in Indiana, you can connect with us via a chat feature on the CRG. We'd love to help you find more information on resources to address your challenges and your opportunities. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Yeah, y'all take care.